Good morning. I'm Nathan Chambers, one of the pastors here at Wiser Lake Chapel. I especially want to say happy Mother's Day to mothers this morning. When I visited uh, Jack Rexford this week, Martha wanted to make sure I knew that I to say happy Mother's Day. So, <laughs> I, uh, Those are the kinds of things you need reminded of as a new minister. <laughs> The text uh, we're going through this morning, if you're a visitor, you might think, why in the world would they pick that text to preach about on Mother's Day? Uh, and I want you to know, it's, it's not that we sat down and thought, this is a great Mother's Day text to talk about the end of the world and the tribulation that is to come. Uh, but rather, we are in the discipline of working through books of the Bible that force us to deal with texts that we don't always want to deal with. And certainly this qualifies in that category. But I think we'll find it's also a helpful text. We live in mixed times. We live in one of the wealthiest nations in the world. But as you know, farms, local shops, newspapers, and universities even struggle to stay in business. Our science knows more about the world than ever before, and yet the rainforests are being cut down and ice shelves are shrinking. In the last couple years, our society has finally realized that the way many men treat their female colleagues is deeply inappropriate. And yet at the same time, our society continues to advance an equally deeply confused sexual ethic. We live in mixed times. Every step forward seems to be contradicted and undone by a step backward. Are things getting better or worse? Can we even tell? In Matthew 24, 3 through 14, our text this morning, Jesus recognizes that all times, this side of Eden, are mixed times. And he teaches his disciples how to live in mixed times. In the last several chapters before this passage, Jesus has been teaching in the temple and debating with various Jewish leaders. And then Jesus leaves the temple for the last time in verses 1 and 2, and this is where our text picks up, Matthew 24, verse 3, reading to verse 14. Hear this, the word of God. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And become law because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. 
A quick refresher. As we heard last week, Jesus left the temple. He left the temple for the last time, the last time he was ever in the temple. And as they were on their way out, the disciples pointed to the physical buildings of the temple, and they they said, isn't this marvelous to Jesus? But he responds, every stone of the temple will be thrown down. We have to pause here. When Notre Dame Cathedral caught fire several weeks ago, it was tragic. But the destruction of the temple was more than simply losing an architectural treasure. Herod's temple was indeed an architectural marvel of its day. The Jewish historian Josephus uh, says that the stones of the temple were 15 feet by 5 feet by 8 feet, so massive stones, and they were overlaid with gold plating so that the temple would reflect sunlight even to those who are far away. And the temple was a tall building, and it was up on Mount Zion, the high point in the city. Most other buildings in the city would have been short, so anywhere you were in the city, you would have seen the temple. It would have dominated your thoughts and your horizon. But the temple was more than just a beautiful building. It played a central role in Jewish worship, in the sacrifices and festivals. Jesus and his disciples were at many of these festivals. And so the temple was not only an architectural wonder, but it was a key part of Jewish culture and identity. So at least for us Americans, a closer analogy to the destruction of the temple than the Notre Dame fire would be something like 9-11 or the shooting of JFK. If you can remember 9-11, if you're old enough, you remember that the world was, it was like it was suddenly turned upside down. The sense of security and stability of our nation had been shaken. To the the disciples of Jesus, talking about the destruction of the temple would have been a similar thing. As far as they can conceive, the world was coming to an end. Now, as far as we know, no one says anything as they leave the temple and they leave the city and they make their way up to the Mount of Olives, about a half hour's walk. But surely the disciples are chewing on this as they walk. And Jesus knows his disciples. He knows that they have questions. And so when they get to the Mount of Olives, he sits down. They're right across the valley from the temple. Surely it's even in view as they talk. And finally, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask, what is going on? What are you talking about? In verse 3, they ask, and notice this question, when will these things be? That is, when will the temple be destroyed? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? For the disciples, this is basically all one question. If the temple's being destroyed, surely that is the end of the age, the end of the world as they know it. And we have to remember that when the disciples ask about Jesus coming, they're not thinking he's going to die, rise again, ascend into heaven, and then return. As far as they're thinking, in their minds, Jesus coming means coming in power. That as the Messiah, he's finally going to drive out the Romans and be seated in authority. They're saying, when will all things be reordered? Jesus' response to this question is quite long. The next two chapters are devoted to answering this. This morning, we just need to note two aspects of this response. First, just very briefly, note that Jesus unhitches the destruction of the temple from the end of the ages. The disciples assume this is all one big event, but Jesus is actually saying these are quite separate things. They're distant in time. They're not necessarily linked. He challenges that assumption throughout our passage this morning. But second, in our passage, Jesus starts to answer this question by instructing his disciples. How do you live in mixed up times? How do you live in times 
when everything you've known, the stability of your nation is being threatened and even destroyed. And he gives them three instructions, three instructions that we need to meditate on this morning. He says, don't go astray, don't be afraid, and don't give up. Don't go astray, don't be afraid, and don't give up. Jesus' first instruction is do not go astray. Don't go astray. Now, Jesus could have answered the disciples in all kinds of ways. He could have said, you know what, guys, it's none of your business. Uh, It's for me to know when the world's going to end and for you to find out. But he doesn't. He doesn't reject their question out of hand. He says, he takes it seriously. But he recognizes that when we ask these sorts of questions, when we start asking about the future, we need to be cautious. He says, don't go astray. Asking about the end of the world, about the future, it's easy to go astray. It's easy to get caught up in idle speculation and crazy theories. You may recall a few years ago that it was discovered that a Mayan calendar ended at the year 2012. And people got worked up, convincing themselves that the world was going to end or some catastrophe would happen in 2012. Uh, One poll found that a full 10% of people around the world thought that the world would likely end in 2012. And 8% of people even said that they experienced fear or anxiety about the end of the world in 2012. And before that, of course, it was Y2K. The world was going to end in the year 2000. And before that, it was 1994. It just keeps going back and back. And Christians are as bad as anyone, if not worse. When it comes to predictions about and speculations about the end of the world, Christians can say all kinds of crazy things. Tele-evangelist Harold Camping, for example, famously mispredicted the end of the world a half a dozen times. Uh, and if you wanted, you could go home this afternoon and order online a variety of end times charts. Now, no, this is not a good Mother's Day gift. Uh, don't, but, but you can order a variety of charts. I did a little research. You can get them up from 28 inches all the way up to 14 feet long, documenting the steps to the end of the world. And although the 20th century might be particularly bad for these sorts of end of the world speculations, it actually goes all the way back. Even the, in the second century, one of the earliest Christian heresies, the Montanists, were convinced that the world was about to end in the second century. And of course, we all know looking back that the world didn't end in any of those times, right? And yet looking forward, it's not hard to see how you could get caught up thinking the world is really in trouble. It's really going to fall apart here. In all this speculation, it's easy to lose track of what's really important and to go astray. And Jesus says, don't do it. In in our passage, Jesus specifically warns his disciples about two types of people that would lead them astray, would try to lead them astray. First, see in verse 5, he says, many will come in Jesus' name claiming to be Christ, or probably claiming to be anointed, some sort of designated successor to Christ, claiming to be messianic leaders. And although they come claiming to be in Christ's name, they will lead many astray. But these are merely pretenders. We can see that if we note a contrast in verse 9. In verse 5, it says, Many will come in my name and try to lead you. But then in verse 9, it says, You will be hated for my name's sake. The fact is, there's all kinds of people who claim to be Christians when it's expedient, who use Jesus' name when it's to their advantage or when it's socially acceptable. There are all kinds of celebrities with cross necklaces and athletes with cross tattoos. 
But none of that is a sure sign that someone is a reliable Christian leader. On the other hand, someone who's willing to be hated for Jesus' name, who owns up to Jesus' name even when they're hated for it, that's someone who's genuine about their convictions. It's someone who really bears Jesus' name. Second, Jesus warns his disciples in verse 11, not only will there be false leaders who come in my name, but there will be false prophets. And they too, verse 11 says, will lead many astray. Of course, this is not news to the disciples. All the way back in chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned that false prophets would come who are really, they're in sheep's clothing, but they're really wolves seeking to devour. And he warns his disciples, you can find a false prophet by their fruit. They can be known by their fruit. And if we apply this test to the would-be prophets of our day, uh, we can see that they're false prophets, that many who claim to have special insight into the date of Christ's return. Uh, But when we test them by this test of of knowing them by their fruit, we see that these idle speculations, these false claims, don't lead listeners into a growing love of Jesus or a renewed desire to live quiet and godly lives. That is to say, the man on the street corner with the end is near sign is not encouraging anyone to love Jesus better. Um, But it's not only people who lead us astray. Jesus also warns us that we'll hear about wars and earthquakes and famines, natural disasters. And hearing these things will disturb us. And it's precisely these things that can lead us into idle speculation. We think, is this the end? Is this earthquake the beginning of the end of the world? And Jesus says, no, in verse 6, it's not the end. So Jesus' first instruction for living in mixed times is don't go astray. Guard yourself. Not everyone who claims to follow Jesus is actually Jesus' follower. There are pretend prophets who would lead you astray. There's so-called signs of the end that are certainly no sure sign. And all this literally leads us astray. If we're not on guard, fixation on the end of the world can occupy our attention and distract us from leading useful and responsible lives in the world now where God has put us. End time obsession leads away from the goodness of God's creation and works against a patient faith and involvement in our community to which we are called. Don't go astray. Jesus' second instruction for living in mixed times is do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus says in these mixed times, in the times between my first and second coming, you're going to hear about all sorts of catastrophic things, about actual wars and possible wars, about international conflicts, about natural disasters, earthquakes and famines and plagues. I heard a story on the radio this week uh, about people over in the Methow Valley near Winthrop who live in fear of wildfires. One woman uh, said she listens to uh, uh, three different radio scanners going all the time, day and night, listening for the possible hint of a fire. Another lady who lost her home in 2015 to a fire and is now in a different home in the same area said she hardly sleeps during wildfire. Instead, she spends hours on the internet trying to get the latest updates on possible fires. And she says last year she was down in Wenatchee shopping and she thought she saw smoke on the horizon in the north and so she, quote, sped home as fast as I can, passing people, trembling, can't breathe, crying, speeding, almost got in several wrecks because I was going into oncoming traffic 
around other people who were going way too slow. She was in such a panic that she actually forgot her husband in Wenatchee and called her to come back. And although it's funny, this woman literally could have killed someone with her driving because she was overwhelmed by fear and anxiety about wildfires. Now, I don't want to downplay the severity of the tragedy that those who have lived through fires uh, have endured. And the truth is, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. We hear the latest story about North Korea resuming missile tests or about the collapse of the Iran nuclear deal, and we start to worry. Does this mean war? Could it be another world war? What happens if a country uses nuclear weapons? Or we watch the latest nature documentary on Netflix and can feel overwhelmed by the catastrophic damage being done to the environment. In fact, fear and anxiety seems to be increasing in the Western world. Last year, Barnes & Noble reported a 25% increase in sales of books about how to deal with anxiety. In the United Kingdom in the last five years, the number of workers reporting anxiety or depression rose by a third. Apparently, of the 300 million people worldwide who have anxiety disorders, a disproportionate amount, 40 million, live in the United States. And after all, we do have all sorts of things to fear and worry about. Can my job support my family? Do I have savings to keep making my house payment if I lose this job? Will I have enough for retirement? Can I pay my medical bills? And we worry about our children. We worry about our parents. And yet Jesus tells his disciples, don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. The end is not yet. And again in verse 8, he says, this is not the end. This is but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus tells his disciples that all sorts of cataclysmic things will happen, even the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But this is not a sure sign of the end of the world. No, this is just what life is like in mixed times. In a world that is broken and in need of repair, these things happen. Catastrophic events in and of themselves are no sure sign of the end of the world. It's a false connection. And what Jesus warns his disciples is true. He said many of the, this will happen in verse 36, we'll see uh, in, in a coming week. He says this will happen before this generation passes away. And we know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. The period from Jesus' death in 30 AD to about the early 60s was one of the most peaceful periods in Roman history. But the Roman historian Tacitus writes the following when he turns to start writing about the 60s. He says, the history on which I am entering is a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil, civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. Italy was distressed by disasters unknown before or since. Besides the manifold misfortunes that befell mankind, there were prodigies in the sky and on the earth warnings given by thunderbolts and prophecies of the future. After the death of Nero in AD 68 was the so-called year of four emperors, when in quick succession four emperors died. Can you imagine, we, uh, some of you who are old enough will remember JFK dying. Can you imagine four presidents dying in the same year? 
And there was earthquakes. In Turkey, there was a big earthquake in 61, in Italy in 62, in Jerusalem in 67. There were several periods of widespread famine. And of course, this all culminated in AD 70, at least from the perspective of Jerusalem. It all culminates in AD 70, when Emperor Titus abolished the priesthood. Imagine pastors being outlawed in our country. He destroyed the temple, he burned the city of Jerusalem, and he either enslaved or killed everyone left in the city. Estimated a million Jews were killed by Titus. But Jesus says even this, even these wars, civil wars, earthquakes, the destruction of the Jewish homeland, even this is not the end. And it is a comfort to know that whatever disasters come, whatever catastrophes we face, it is not the end of the world. Disasters happen. But this is also a challenge to us. If we think famines and droughts and wars we hear about are signs that the end is near, we say, it's going to be the end of the world. It doesn't really matter. What do we have to do? But if these are not signs of the end of the world, and Jesus says, that's not the end. You don't have any sure sign. No one knows when I will come for sure. If these aren't signs of the end of the world, then we actually have to deal with the issues. After all, Jesus has not returned in the last 2,000 years, and who's to say he won't wait another 2,000 years? But then we actually have to do something about famine and hunger, about drought and deforestation, about soil degradation and transportation issues. Young people, one of you may be called to figure out how to deal with wildfires or nuclear proliferation. If this isn't the end, Christians actually have to get involved in the, solving the problems that we're facing. Christians are not called to eject from a crashing plane. They're not called to abandon ship. Rather, Christians are called by Jesus to live in mixed times. Like Jeremiah, we're called to seek the good of the land where we have been placed. We can't just sit on the sidelines. We have to get in the game. But even more reassuring than simply telling us that disasters don't mean the end of the world is around the corner, Jesus tells us in verse 6 that these things must take place, that they're necessary. When we're in the midst of a disaster or catastrophe, the anxiety and fear can be overwhelming. But Jesus says these things must take place. In a roundabout way, he's saying that the world is still governed by God's plan, that things fall out of the necessity of God's providence, that in the end, God's will will prevail. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. Live in hope. All things are in God's control. Jesus' third instruction for living in mixed times. He says, don't go astray, don't be afraid. And third, he says, do not give up. Don't give up. Jesus never says it's going to be easy. Far from it. He says all kinds of disasters are what you can expect. Not only these disasters leading up to the destruction of the temple, but that's just the beginning of birth pains. When you're pregnant for the first time and you're nine months along and you have your first contraction, you think, this is it. The baby is here. But moms, you know, there can be a long time, a long time between the first contraction and the baby finally being here. It can be hours. Some women have contractions for days. Uh, if, you, if you can recall what it's like when you had, you know, pregnant with the first baby, you call the hospital and you say, we had a contraction. They said, well, how far apart was it? And you said, well, 
I don't, I have, you know, track it, and then you say, well, they're half an hour apart, and they say, well, when it's 10 minutes apart, call us. We don't even want to hear from you until then, right? It's, so for, for, you say, oh, this contraction is a massive thing, but then by the time you're up to the point of pushing, you think, I wish it was just those light contractions at the beginning. Uh, I, of course, I'm saying all this secondhand, just observing, not a... <laughs> uh, uh, and you, you thought, though, that a sermon about the end of the world wouldn't have any connection to Mother's Day, but see, here's a natural connection. Jesus says... It, these things, it's just like the very first contraction. It's just the beginning. You have to endure all the way to the end. He says, hang in there. Don't give up. In verse 9, Jesus shifts the focus. He's been talking about these world events. And in verse 9, he shifts the focus to the life of the Christian community. And honestly, this is no more comforting. He warns his disciples that they will be delivered up to tribulation and death. This same term, to be delivered up, is used of John the Baptist, Jesus a cousin who was executed, and it's used of Jesus himself. Jesus endures what his disciples will face, and he says, don't expect any different. They killed me, they will kill you. And then in verse 9, the end of verse 9, Jesus makes what my friend Dave Klein calls everyone's least favorite promise in the Bible. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. But note a couple things here. Jesus says Christians will be hated for his name's sake. Too often, Christians do all kinds of weird things, and then when people react to them being weird, as we naturally do, they say, well, there it is. Uh, Jesus said we were going to be hated. Um, but Jesus says, you'll be hated for my name's sake. He doesn't say go out and do bizarre things. He doesn't say antagonize people. Uh, he, he doesn't say have a bizarre subculture and cause people to hate you, but rather he says, hang on to my name even when people hate you. And this is a, a real issue in our community. I was uh, at the movies yesterday, and I actually saw John there, but we were, we were there with a friend who's not a Christian, and he said, uh, he was asking me how it's going at Wiser Lake, and I said, it's going great. And he said, you're not one of the churches down uh, boycotting, uh, you're going to hell on Railroad Avenue, where I guess there's uh, cross-dressers and stuff. And I, I said, no, that's not, not our church. But that's, that's his point of reference. You're talking about Christians. And he says, well, that's the people with the signs boycotting down in Bellingham. And this is not what Jesus is saying. He doesn't say go out and make people hate you. He says, hang on to my name, but know that it's not always going to be comfortable. Jesus also says in verse 14 that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. So notice this paradox. All nations will hate you, and yet it's to those very nations that his gospel is to be proclaimed. Being hated by the nations does not justify hating the nations back. No, we are called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus says, don't give up. But not only will the nations hate Jesus' disciples, but even members of the Christian community will turn away from the faith. Christians are called to love one another. But instead, Jesus says in verse 10, Christians will betray one another and hate one another, the exact opposite of what Christians are meant to do. And in verse 12, Jesus explains why this will happen. He says, love will grow cold, because lawlessness will increase. He's not saying that, that people are going to break the laws, they're going to speed and shoplift, and therefore their love will grow cold. Rather, he's talking about God's law, God's principles for life, and he's setting out an important principle. Lasting love requires a law. It has to be governed. Law has to, or love has to be governed by a principle or a rule. Think about it. For example, uh, in marriage, 
For lasting love in marriage, it requires faithful behavior. It requires saying no to all kinds of things that kill a marriage. Infidelity, but also things like too much golfing. Jesus recognizes that this love requires a law or a principle to govern it. And likewise, he says Christian love requires submitting to the law of God, to a specific way of living. It requires saying no to things that might not even be bad in themselves, but threatens to block out the calling before us. And so in verse 13, Jesus says, it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. The one who endures as long as it takes. The one who sticks it out through disaster and persecution. Again, Jesus recognizes that the Christian life is like an athlete. It requires endurance and submitting to a rule. Uh, you can't... Sorry, just a second here. I'm sure you all know, like, like I do, that going to the gym once does not make you a great athlete. Uh, or saying no to dessert one time is not the key to weight loss and becoming a great athlete. But to be an athlete, you have to daily submit to a law that governs all your eating and exercise your behavior. And Jesus applies this image to the Christian life. He says it requires daily discipline, endurance to the end, steadfast perseverance, even in the face of adversity. That's why his followers are called disciples, because they submit to a rule of discipline. Jesus says, don't give up. Now, the Christian life does require submitting to a law. It requires endurance. But verse 14 points to an even deeper truth. And here is where we hear good news in this passage. Uh, in verse 14, we hear that the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus is king will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And then, Jesus says, the end will come. If Christianity were just about gutting it out through difficult times, if it was just about having a positive attitude when things look bad, that would not be good news. We'd actually have no reason for hope in the face of disaster. If anything, if my hope was simply in my own ability to endure, I would have good reason to fear. I'm not very good at enduring. Uh, Pastor Burt and I were talking this week about this uh, passage, and, and I said, yeah, I, I, I can't even say no to a piece of cake. I can't endure difficult things. I have a sweet tooth. And Pastor Burt said, yeah, I have the same issue. That, and we both said, sometimes we're even eating cake and think, this isn't even that great a cake, but I'm still eating it. And, if that's, if that's my hope is in my own self-control, I'm lost. That's the bottom line. I can't even control what I eat very well, let alone larger issues, ethical issues. So if Christianity was just about that, we would have no reason for hope, and we would have good reason to fear if it was just about our own ability. But the heart of Christianity is not about what we can do. It's rather about good news that Jesus has come as the true Christ. There's lots of false Christs. Uh, but he comes as the true Christ. He comes as the true king. When tempted, Jesus did not go astray. Jesus was hated. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He was delivered up to tribulation, and he was put to death. But through Jesus' faithful life, through his endurance to the end, through his death for us, Jesus is making all things new again. And this is the good news. The end of the age, the end of all things, is not about disasters and destruction. It's not about asteroids from the sky. 
or bizarre movies and plots. It's about Jesus making all things new. The end doesn't come through cataclysmic war or natural disaster. The end comes about only in God's good plan, when he has filled the earth with the good news of what he is doing in his son Jesus. And this is good news. When we understand this, when we understand that Christianity is really about something that's already been done for us and declared to us, we will not go astray. Here is life. Why would we go any other way? When our lives are shaped fundamentally by this good news, by the hope that Jesus is making all things new, we won't be afraid when we face disaster and catastrophe. Our hope is not in our own ability to endure, but in Christ's work for us. When we have been grasped by this good news, when our hearts have been arrested by it, why would we ever be tempted to give up? There's a very sad irony to this passage we've been reflecting on this morning. Too often, these verses have been used by Christians as a basis for end-time speculation, for wacky theories, or to scare and manipulate Christians. And yet Jesus says the exact opposite thing. He says to his disciples, don't go astray in idle speculation about the end times. Follow me. He says, don't be afraid when disaster strikes. I am your hope and your firm foundation. And he says, don't give up. There is hope in the gospel, in the good news. Cling to what I have done for you. Let us turn in prayer. Gracious and merciful Father, we are surrounded by circumstances that drive us to anxiety and to fear. We can feel overwhelmed even watching the nightly news. There are many issues and problems facing us as a nation, as a planet, but also as individuals and as families. And yet you have said, that we need to not go astray, but simply to follow the way you have set before us. You have told us that we need not fear, for we have hope in Christ's work for us. And you have encouraged us not to give up. And so I ask, as we reflect on these difficult words of Jesus this morning, that your spirit will be at work encouraging us, encouraging us that we would not be afraid, encouraging us that we would not go astray, encouraging us that we would not give up. Build us up in faith, build us up in hope, and above all, build us up in love, in love for you and in love for each other, in the love which is too often forgotten when people think about the end of the world. We ask these things not because we have hope in ourselves and in our own endurance, but we ask these things in the name of your Son who has died on our behalf who has risen from the grave and who is making all things new. We ask this by the power of your spirit that is making us new. Amen. Well, the next uh, several weeks, six weeks or so,